Hello, welcome to Legendary Adventures, a Legend of Zelda podcast. We've played through all the dungeons in the original Legend of Zelda. We've traveled all over the world map. So now it's a good time to look at the world as a whole. And then we'll put a bow on our discussion of the first game by talking about the legacy of the original Legend of Zelda. So the dynamic between the overworld and the underworld is essential to the Legend of Zelda, but it wasn't always there. In an interview published in the official guidebook for the Japanese version of A Link to the Past, programmer Yusunari Soejima stated that in the early stages, The Legend of Zelda contained only dungeons. Co-creator Shigeru Miyamoto said that when they added the world map, everything at first was all clumped together. As work on the game progressed, the map expanded. The final world map spans 128 screens laid out on an 8x16 grid. I describe the overall design as maze-like. There are few wide open areas and players will often find the screen has some kind of border. The game tries to offer a variety of topographical features and landmarks. There are lakes, a shoreline, two forests, one living in green, the other dead and browning, a graveyard, desert areas, mountain areas. However, the world feels very flat. There are clearly marked staircases in the mountain region to suggest the player is traveling up and down the sides of a mountain. But overall, the visual design always has the player moving around a flat area bordered by walls that just give it the appearance of a canyon. The walls and the cliffs don't pop out in the same way that they would in later games. I would also say that the world as a whole lacks a sense of place. While there are landmarks that the players will come to recognize, like the lake, the rivers, the waterfalls, the seashore, Hyrule doesn't feel like a kingdom. There's no villages or any real population, just a few old men and women hidden in caves. The structures all appear to be ancient. It's a solid setting for a video game, but it doesn't give off the sense of a grand world of fantasy that later titles would. The map contains few signposts or hints to guide the player as they seek the dungeons. Players are left to explore or to turn to supplemental materials like the manual and the included map to find their way. There are two docks marking the places where players can launch the raft. Twice players will find rocks with an arrow formation, one just west of the starting screen, that arrow points back to the east, perhaps a light hint that the first dungeon is not to the west. Another arrow is found on top of the mountain. It points west towards Spectacle Rock, which is located just three screens to the west of the arrow. Other secrets such as bombable walls, burnable trees go unmarked. This has given the game a reputation of requiring players to burn every bush and bomb every wall to find the secrets. It's true to a degree that players determined to find everything on their own will have to do a lot of trial and error. Other players, however, can use walkthroughs if they're stumped. Also, the map included in the game marks eight squares with question marks. One marks the waterfall, behind which you can find the hint to the fifth dungeon. One marks the location of the seventh dungeon, which is perhaps the hardest to find. One marks the location of a moblin that will offer Link rupees. And two mark the locations of items hidden beneath armor statues, the blue ring, and the power bracelet. And the final three mark the location of fast travel points. Fast travel systems are incredibly common in open-world style of games like The Legend of Zelda. This game bizarrely features two different systems for fast travel. Neither is very player-friendly. The power bracelet unlocks four fast travel locations spread across the world map. Each is marked either by a single rock or four rocks surrounding a blank space. Pushing either that lone rock or the rock on the west will reveal a staircase. Descending the staircase, we find an old man and three additional staircases. We are told to take any road we want. Each staircase exits to another fast travel point, but none are marked, meaning that players have to guess blindly. 
Each fast travel point can be re-entered upon exit, but the staircases in each fast travel location are laid out in different orders. I find this system to be too unwieldy to be usable, and beyond some initial curiosity, I never fast traveled using these points. The second fast travel system uses the whistle. Blowing the whistle on the overworld will summon a whirlwind that will carry you to a dungeon entrance. However, it's not entirely clear how this works. The Zelda fan wiki suggests that players can only warp between completed dungeons, with the whistle moving Link between dungeons in ascending order if he is oriented to the north or east, and then between dungeons in descending order if he's oriented to the west or south. I should also probably acknowledge the game's second quest. After completing the game, players have the option to start that quest. It includes nine new extra challenging dungeons, and the locations of these dungeons on the overworld are shuffled around. It's an extra challenge for fans who really get into this game. I personally have never played through the second quest in its entirety. I've started it, but just have never really gotten anywhere. The inclusion of the second quest at all was a bit of a fluke. In a 2010 Iwata Asks interview, programmer Toshihaki Nakako said that he laid out the dungeon's following plans given to him by Takashi Tezuka. Once he had, only half of the available memory was used. With a full half of the available memory left, they decided to design the second quest. The interview includes drawings showing how the dungeons were designed to fit together across the 128-screen grid like a jigsaw puzzle. I'll share these drawings on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Legendary Adventures Podcast. The first five dungeons fit together to fill one 128-screen grid. The final three dungeons then fit together to fill a second. Tezuka said that they designed the dungeons this way to get as many dungeons in the game with limited memory available to them. I haven't seen it explicitly stated, but I would hazard a guess that the repeated rooms of the dungeon were also part of this space-saving attempt. This precaution, though, seems to have worked a little too well, resulting in all that extra space. The second quest is available once players complete the game, or right at the start of the game, players can name their Link Zelda when starting a new save game, and they will immediately start to the second quest. A few later games in the series would also feature second quests, but they're not all that common. It's clear that this first game in the series sets up many ideas that would be iterated on as the series continues. These ideas, however, are still a little rough around the edges. The fast travel systems would be improved. The world maps would gain more of a sense of place. Items like keys would be changed so they only work in the dungeons in which they are found, and more. But the legacy of this game is undeniable. A Wikipedia article of the best-selling NES games lists The Legend of Zelda as the sixth best-selling game on the system. It cites an article from themagicbox.com which states that the game sold more than 6 million copies. With the success of The Legend of Zelda, Nintendo quickly began to work on sequels. The series is recognized as one of the company's flagship series, and it now spans more than 20 games. The Legend of Zelda also spawned many imitators. In Japan, the game was a launch title for the Famicom Disk System. That's an add-on for the Japanese equivalent of the NES. It used what were essentially large floppy disks to play the games. The change in format allowed Nintendo to offer bigger games at a lower price, it also allowed for more ambitious games like Zelda because the discs had the ability to save game files. According to an article on Wikipedia, however, the disc system was deemed obsolete within three years of its launch. That's because cartridge technology was improving. Outside of Japan, The Legend of Zelda was released on a cartridge. It used more advanced chips and a battery-powered backup to save the games. The battery keeps the temporary memory of the cartridge active, allowing for the game to be saved as long as the battery has power. In his NES Works series, 
Jeremy Parrish notes that The Legend of Zelda was not the first game to use a battery backup. He names at least one game that predated it, but it's widely considered to be the first major release to include one, and it helped popularize the practice. I feel The Legend of Zelda also establishes the core gameplay elements that will define the series. Zelda fans often discuss the Zelda formula, sort of a common structure of the series. However, when it is discussed, I often hear commentators describe elements from A Link to the Past or Ocarina of Time, like a dual world or a two-act structure. These are featured in many games of the series, but certainly not all. I hypothesize that the true Zelda formula is defined by this first game in the series. So what is that formula? Well, it first comes down to the genre. This is a thorny discussion among video game fans. Genres are defined by the type of play rather than the mood or the setting like you might find in books or movies. Over the years, I've heard many people complain about the way video game genres are categorized. That's partially because many genre elements have been blended together over the years. The Legend of Zelda is a game that does plenty of genre blending. I'll do my best though as I define what I mean as I describe the genre of The Legend of Zelda and games similar to it. At the time of its release, and for many years afterwards, Zelda was described as an RPG, or role-playing game. These are video games that are inspired by Dungeons and & Dragons and similar tabletop games. Role-playing games generally try to emulate and adapt that Dungeons & Dragons experience into a digital format. RPGs generally feature characters that are customized by the players with individual stats that can be improved, generally through acquiring experience points. Those points are generally awarded through battle. These games also feature an extensive array of accessories and armor that can be equipped to improve player stats. There's also economies and shops, dungeons to explore. It's easy to see how Zelda draws from role-playing games. Players can name Link whatever they want. They can also improve his stats, though not through the collection of experience points, rather through the collection of equipment and heart containers. However, the equipment in Zelda is more limited and it's permanently applied once collected. Zelda also has a distinct focus on action. This wasn't really seen in the RPGs of its days. Players fight enemies in real time and have to dodge attacks and obstacles while landing attacks of their own. In some cases, this requires quick movement on the part of the player to avoid damage. These are elements that are more in line with arcade action titles. There's even collectible stopwatches that will temporarily stop all enemies on screen, like in an arcade game. Combat challenges are essential to the game, and dungeons regularly feature screens which must be cleared of all enemies to progress, much like an action game. Zelda also draws elements from adventure games. The adventure games started as text-based games on PCs. They get their name from the very first of these games, the Colossal Cave Adventure. That was an entirely text-based game. Player entered simple text commands to explore the world, experience a story, and solve puzzles. Later adventure games would feature graphics and eventually adopt a point-and-click interface. The genre is known for its distinct focus on story and puzzles. In adventure games, the puzzles generally revolve around collecting and using a variety of inventory items. We can see the adventure game influence in Zelda with the various tools that Link collects. There's also the riddle-like hints offered by the old men and women in the game. In the interview for the Link to the Past Player's Guide, Takashi Tezuka said, Of the original Legend of Zelda, we basically decided to make a real-time adventure game. No one wants to do physical things like pushing and pulling by selecting them from a menu. If you're going to push something, you want there to be some force behind it. Let's touch on a few examples of the adventure game mentality within Zelda. Bombs are one example. They're used to solve puzzles such as defeating Dodongo or using the map in conjunction with the bombs in level 5 to reach an otherwise unreachable room. The adventure game elements are also pretty clear in level 7, the demon. Players are offered a riddle to solve in order to find the dungeon. An item, in this case the whistle, is required to reveal the dungeon. 
It also features the Hungry Goria puzzle. It's sort of a true adventure game puzzle that's solved through the use of an item. So while Zelda was primarily defined as an RPG at the time of its release, today I think we would more readily define it as an action-adventure series. It has real-time combat and lots of adventure game tropes, including puzzle solving, interacting with non-player characters, and a distinct focus on inventory items. The RPG elements are absolutely there, and they remain to this day. In that Player's Guide interview, Shigeru Miyamoto said of Zelda, it has everything that's good about an RPG. It's interesting to hear my players bragging about how they've got this armor and that tunic so they don't take any damage. It means they're really attached to the character. That's why I wanted them to choose their own name. The Legend of Zelda is also open world. Now, open world games are not a genre unto themselves. It's a sort of modifier term that explains the format of the game and its world. Open world games can be action games, RPGs, platformers, racing games, and more. Remember, game designer John Harris defined open-world titles as being games where players are generally left on their own to explore a large world. That means open-world titles generally feature interconnected world maps. They're not clearly segmented in the way you might find levels in other games. Open-world games generally feature a level of persistence as well. There are things that just don't reset. For example, in The Legend of Zelda, any secret that's revealed through a bombed wall or a burned tree remains revealed after the initial discovery. We can contrast this to the Super Mario games. Remember, the original Super Mario game was designed at the same time as The Legend of Zelda, and it was designed to be the opposite of Zelda. While it features occasional cutscenes that show how the stages are connected together, each stage is nonetheless a single, segmented, self-contained area, clearly separated and distinct from any other. Future games, such as Super Mario Bros. 3 and Super Mario World, would feature interconnected world maps, but those maps are still just a means to connect distinct, contained, separate levels that reset every time a stage is entered. Even Super Mario's 3D titles like Super Mario 64 and Super Mario Sunshine can't really be described as open world. They feature explorable hub worlds to be sure, but they also feature distinct stages that are selected from a menu. And when a stage is selected, a preloaded state is revealed. Now, while exploration is a big part of open world gaming, that doesn't mean that players are given no direction. We saw that even as we played through this game. Players were given hints on locations to travel to. The main quest featured nine dungeons to conquer. Each one is numbered sequentially, and their difficulty largely falls in line with that sequence. An open world also does not mean that there will be no dead ends. In addition to the expected bounds at the edge of the game world, players also run into areas that are hard-locked or soft-locked, preventing them from moving forward until they either have the proper equipment, skill, or story progression to move forward. We saw these bounds here in the original Legend of Zelda. There were hard locks like the raft docks and soft locks like the Lost Woods. We can also see bounds like this in other open world titles, ranging from Batman Arkham City to Lego City Undercover to Super Metroid to Breath of the Wild. There is a notion that has risen in recent years that The Legend of Zelda was not an open world series until Breath of the Wild. But we can see in this first game, and I believe most, if not all of the subsequent games, that that's not the case. The reasoning behind deeming Breath of the Wild open world versus other games in the Zelda series generally boils down to hard and soft locks. Commentators often say that Breath of the Wild has no locks. They also highlight that the dungeons can be completed in a variety of orders. And while it's true that the dungeons can be completed in a variety of orders in Breath of the Wild, it absolutely has both hard locks and soft locks in it. An example of a hard lock within Breath of the Wild is the Great Plateau. Players cannot leave it until they acquire the glider. We can also look to Gerudo Town, where players cannot enter unless they have the proper clothes to disguise themselves. There's also a number of soft locks in the game in locations like the Lost Woods and Zora's Domain, 
We'll explore all these further when we actually get to Breath of the Wild within this podcast series, but I feel this is important to establish now. The Legend of Zelda is an open-world series, and it has been from the beginning. I personally feel that the non-linear structure of the original Legend of Zelda is often overstated. It is true that there are dozens of possible ways to move through this game. It's true that it gives you a large space to explore right from the beginning, but the game's structure and layout and its difficulty clearly prescribes an intended order from the developers. I believe the average player will stick fairly close to that intended progression, at least on their first playthrough. So, with all that said, how would I define the Zelda formula? I would say that Zelda games are open-world action-adventure games. Each game features a main quest that revolves around collecting plot-relevant items, or MacGuffins, from dungeons. Each dungeon will feature a tool or dungeon item that needs to be collected to grant the players more abilities. Dungeons also award players with heart containers. And there's generally a boss at the end to be defeated. That's sort of the big picture Zelda formula, in my opinion. This game also defines a number of smaller game mechanics that are seen in other Zelda games. Real nitty-gritty stuff that's carried over. Like Link's health being represented by hearts. And his health being restored by collecting life heart items. The game also introduces concepts like fairy fountains to restore health. Fairies that can be collected to restore health. Potions to use to restore health and an assignable button that players can set an item to to use it. It also establishes rupees as the currency of the Legend of Zelda series, though the rupee values and colors aren't really set yet. And this is all tied together with a story that lays the groundwork for the larger series. The story and lore of the Kingdom of Hyrule, the magical Triforce, Ganon, Link, and Zelda, they're all kind of sketchy here, but they're there. It's a jumping-off point to larger stories and to what's now a truly complex game lore that fans love poring over and theorizing about. All that said, the very next game in the series stretches that formula I laid out to its limit, perhaps even breaks it. That's Zelda II The Adventure of Link. It's a big departure from the original game. We'll start exploring it next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and follow along. Please also consider sharing this podcast with another Zelda fan. I'm Paul Riley. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.